Welcome to another episode of the Goldust Podcast. We hope everybody enjoyed our last episode with Brian McDermott. Before we introduce today's guest, we wanted to share that we're re-releasing our number one best-selling book, Goldust, How to Become a More Effective Coach, quickly. Mark Twain, who's considered one of the greatest writers of all time, once said, to stand still is to fall behind. While we're proud of the contribution our book has made around the world, we weren't content with it. On November 28th, three years after its initial release, the new version will be available, and it will also come out in hardback. The content does remain very similar, but it's been updated to a more user-friendly version. Now, moving on. For today's podcast, here is a snippet of what to expect today. When you speak different languages, it's not just the language you, you learn. It's, it's the way you communicate with a different a person who comes from different culture. So when you, when, uh, and, I, and I realized, you know, people in the training ground, when they see me speaking English, it's not like when they see me speaking French. When I speak French, even my body language changes. And then the, the way I talk changes. So when I speak to Jan Valerie in, in French, trying to explain training sessions, it's totally different to um, Michael Obafemi or, or, or Willis Morgan in, 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 in the sessions. Um, and then you have to adapt to every person. You have to consider the background. To know the background, you need to build a good relationship with these people and know what are their strengths, their weaknesses, what are their fears. Especially in that age, when you speak about 17, 16, 17 years old, between that and a 23 years old, it's about maybe players hiding their fears and then protect them by being aggressive or they ignore you or a reaction that may be not making sense for you. We're excited to welcome Radi Jaidi onto the Goldust podcast today. Radi is a former Premier League and Tunisian international footballer. After his playing career finished, Radi went into coaching, starting at Southampton, working his way up to become their under-23 head coach. He's now senior coach at Circle Bruges in Belgium. But his journey wasn't an easy one. Raddy grew up playing on the streets in Tunisia while also dealing with personal tragedy as a young boy, which he shares today. Raddy, welcome and thank you for coming on to the Goldust podcast today. Thank you, David. Uh, pleasure. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to discuss my path and my career with you guys. Yeah, well, let's jump straight into it. So to us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you? Well, um, I think you, you took, you know, the best, you know, explanation of this, but uh, using my imagination, and my experience, the gold dust for me is the tiny mixed particles of um, of ex- of experiences, education, and maybe knowledge that help us shape our path. I think we should all strive for these particles to keep improving and hit our level uh, and our heights. If we do it obsessively, you know, that research, I think we will hit our level of wisdom, if I can say that. So, Ruddy, what we'll do is delve into your past history, a little bit around what you're currently doing, but you're a retired professional soccer player, playing for Bolton Wanderers in the Premier League, you played for Birmingham City and Southampton. You also captain your country, Tunisia, in the African Cup of Nations. How has each of these playing experiences shaped your character? Yeah, I think it's a good question, Keith. Um, all my life, uh, since since maybe 12 years old, you know, was around football. It, it wasn't planned to be fair but you know every time you know football come back you know to uh, to shape my uh, my path 
there is no doubt football had a major impact on every single aspect of my character. I think the um, the accumulation of ex- of the experience and the education and the challenges that I faced, you know, since young age, not just um, in England, it, it makes sense to my true values now. Um, football taught me how to be strong, how to be resilient. In the same time, taught me to be calm, compose, and think strategically for, towards you know ultimate objectives, um, especially my own individual objectives. I traveled the world. I met people uh, from different countries with different mentalities and different you know culture, which make me accepting people differences as well, and then speak three three language. I, I won a lot of trophy locally and and internally. What make me always a uh, playing to win uh, or I develop develop myself to win. So all these, you know, characteristic, I think, because I've been in football through the years. As as my dad mentioned, you, you captain your country, Tunisia. Um, you were obviously brought up in Tunisia. Can you take us on a, a journey of what life was like for you growing up? Uh, do you have time, Dave? This is gonna be like it's a long journey to be fair. So, so uh, as you said, I'm born in Tunisia, Tunis, the capital, with a parent origins from from south of Tunisia, Gebes. Uh, I have only a younger brother, who's who's born epileptics. We we were a very balanced medium class family. So my dad was the source of uh, of the family finance, and my mom was a, a housewife looking after us. So at a young age. Um, we we didn't have many options at that time. There is no PlayStation, there is no Xboxes, there is no Apple TV, whatever. So after school, I just throw my school bag at home, have a snack, and fly straight to the to the street to play football with my friends. So if it's a weekend, obviously I'm I'm able to spend the whole day and night playing football and racing my mates we had the game called we called race so we we race you know around a big you know distance you know uh, in the street and then uh, we enjoyed it of course i want to win and I, I always win it in the summer we go back to south so we go where my parents origin to see the rest of the family so the most where i i, I meet my cousin um, who are same age as me so we spent two and a half months, that, that's a holiday proximity in Tunisia, playing football, climbing trees and swimming on the beach. We uh, we swim. So that continues on and on and on. Um, till, till obviously 1987, where my dad passed away. I was uh, approximately 12 years old, which was a shock for my, my little family, obviously my mom and my brother. I still remember the first word I heard from my uncle, he he came. He was came in, coming toward me with a with a sad face and and really poor body language. And he said to me, "You're the man of the house now. Your mom and your brother are your responsibility." And that stuck in my head, you know, forever. But for me, I was only twelve years old. I just I I still wanted to play football in the street. I still wanted to enjoy my my stuff with my teammate. I still wanted to do whatever. You know, uh, twelve years old. You know, kid uh, does, but but I couldn't because the, the 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 responsibility took over my my life. When I say responsibility, it was only in my head. It was only in in my head. It wasn't really okay. Let's go. You need to go to work. You know, to bring money or. But that was working. You know, in my head, I was like, okay, what I need to do at this age to make sure you know in in time I will be bringing money to my to 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 the family so um since that time as i said my 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 life changed uh, the feeling of being responsible took me off my normal world and i thought this is me now um i i need i need to find a way uh so the first bit initial bit for me i need to make more focus on my education and make sure you know i finish you know, my my years and degrees so uh, we moved back, you know, one year after my dad passed away, we moved back, you know, to Gebes. It was 1988. Mom, she, to feel, you know, surrounded by her family and uh, 
me by chance I joined the local uh, a club uh, it's called Stade Gabzien. Stade Gabzien is a famous club who who used to play in the highest uh, uh, league but then you know got relegated you know I think and he was in third division that time so even when I wanted and I started to play football the the word of and the sense of the responsibility um, take you know make me take you know every every step seriously even playing football was not just for fun for me it was like I wanted to be junior international uh, and then okay I got it in 1990 and and then after that I wanted to be playing for the best team in Tunisia because at 15 years old I started to play senior in, in the local team and I was like okay I was international junior I was playing senior in Stade Gabzien and I said okay can I can I play in the best team in Tunisia? And then I got it. It wasn't easy, especially dealing with a hard, you know, and uh, tough environment, you know, down the south. There were some some stories that even I can say. So some so to 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 find the balance between education and and, and football in Tunisia, we didn't have similar as we see now. Uh, education in academy and players staying in the same place and they have coaches in the same place and they have everything available. I was, I was obviously in school uh, and different uh, to, to the club and they have to take the bus uh, in between the school to go to train and then come back to school. And sometimes I miss the bus, so I have to make the run, I make a jog for 5K into school. And I was only, you know, 13, 14 years old. And, and I had to find a way to get, you know, on time there. So maybe the pace of my jogging has to be quick. It, it's not, it's not, it's, it wasn't easy. But then, but then I made it. I made it in 1993. I was recruited by Esperance of Tunisia. And uh, I was 18 years old. I was international, being involved in a couple of like international tournaments with the national team. And then I joined the club. I thought, okay, 18 years old, international, is going to be easy as well in Esperance. But then, no, it wasn't easy because the team was full of international senior players. Um, and there were like five centre-backs before me. I was the sixth. It was hard to impose myself as a starter, but, but I had a strong belief that football will be my future that time because I have, a, again, the sense of responsibility that always drive me through to achieve my objectives and then challenge every single step uh, uh, or challenge I, fa uh, I face. So I invested more in developing myself uh, by doing extra work, extra focus. And I was almost obsessed about, you know, working hard and then getting myself, you know, to the best level, technically, tactically, physically, you know, all these, you know, aspects. And I was talking to myself I didn't know the sense of the psychology at that time, but if I go back now with the knowledge I have about psychology, I felt that I did really well. I spoke to myself. I was conscious about too many aspects. I didn't do what my teammate that did that time. The best players, they were they were training and then go for a party, go and you know spending time with their friends. I I was finished training and I go to recover at home, eat, drink well, and then sleep well to come back tomorrow. You know. Uh, in the right shape so the the level of conscious even that time you know made me feel okay i need to be different to what these guys do i wasn't technically the best i wasn't really you know uh maybe tactically the best um there were some players better than me but they didn't make it to the senior in experience and i made it and and i think you know my behavior and my attitude and the way of thinking you know, uh, that made me make it. Uh, not not the technical uh, aspect or the quality aspect. Can I just interrupt, if I may, around, because you, you speak quite openly around, you know, at the age of 12, your uncle tells you you're going to be the man of the house. That forming of that experience has obviously helped to create the man that you are today, but... You know, during those formative years, playing street football, I, I would guess, you, you speak quite openly around the mental skills and the even the physical attributes that have allowed you to develop. How much is that mm -hmm. street football? Obviously, your dad's passing, your uncle then mentioned certain things, significant moments in your life, of course, but 
in regards to the street football, going back to that time when you're a youngster, did you, do you feel that has helped to develop you both physically? Because you're going to be playing against bigger, stronger, faster boys at that point. Has as also been a contribution to your mental capacity to be able to deal with things? I didn't have, you know, an academic, you know, development where multidisciplinary team around me and then a performance team around me like we do now. You know, I had I had this Tunisia at that time we had uh, and maybe this generation who doesn't know about, you know, foot, street football in, in, in Tunisia, especially in, 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 uh, in Africa, especially in Tunisia, it's ruthless. It's aggressive and it's limitless, you know, in terms of creativity, in terms of, you know, physicality, in terms of aggressiveness, everything is limitless. There is no rules. So, so the level of the competition can go very high. And I played always with overraised friends in, 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 in our street. So quickly, you learn how to win. You have to find win. Sometimes some games that we play for money. So we, you know, each, each individual put one dinar and then seven v seven, you have 14 dinars and then you play for money. And then basically um, that help you how to get respected as well from others. Because, you know, when you play with, with all the players, you have to be in their the level of expectation. That, that's what I learned from the street. The street is obviously being resilient, be, respect and be respected and then win, especially winning. It's, it's all about winning there. And uh, it doesn't matter how you win. It's, it's, it's find the way to win. You know, the, the environment is very hard, as I said. So I learned about the hard work, the discipline and the sacrifice. So all these values that like progressively, you know, coming through to, to me, you know, even since uh, that age. Already in, in July of the 2004-2005 the season, Sam Allardyce signed you for Bolton Wanderers. What were the differences for you transitioning from playing in Tunisia to now playing in the Premier League at Bolton? Yeah, it's day and night. I'm obviously not happy to say it because obviously I, I always fight, you know, to see Tunisia leading in terms of professionalism in, in all aspects. But, you know, it's day and night, especially you're speaking about 2004. A part of Esperance of Tunisia and maybe two other clubs. The rest, they're struggling financially, struggling in terms of infrastructure. So there's a big difference. So when stepped in England uh, and then Bolton Wanderers, by that time, I think Sam Aladai has just spent 45 million, you know, to refurbish and renew the training ground. So when I came in, I found, you know, world-class training ground, and the difference for me is in all aspects, you know, as a uh, really big difference. You're speaking about the structure of the club, the infrastructure, the culture, the language. When I say language, it's dialect because I started to, to study English, you know, since I was in Tunisia. But when I came to a north, dialect is totally different to what I learned in school. So I had to ask, I have to, I have to ask, you know, two or three times to repeat, you know, to understand. Um the weather, oh, the weather, the weather is shocking. Um, so I came from Tunisia in in July or in June. In Tunisia, it was like 45 degrees and it was rainy, dark, you know, in, in, in Bolton. I was like, what is this? Uh, the food, food is different. We're, Tunisia, we have totally different, you know, um, uh, type of foods. But then, you know, it's totally different in, here in England. Uh, and then the support, especially the support and the expertise around the club that I found here, it's it's amazing. You know, uh, we we will speak about it later, I think. But Sam Aladise was probably innovative in that aspect in supporting the players outside the pitch. So, so despite spending, you know, as I said, forty five million or forty million, you know, in refurbished training ground, he also brought some some of the expertise, you know, stuff, you know, to help the players. It took it took me a period to digest everything, but I managed to integrate and embrace the change quickly because whoever followed my career, when I first came to England, I straight away, without representation, I just been man of the match, scored goals in key games, and then I implement I integrated myself quickly, so I didn't waste time. 
I think the first game I played was against Southampton. I was man of the match. The second game I played against Liverpool, we won 1-0 at Reebok Stadium. And then third game, I went to, to Old Highbury and scored a goal against Arsenal, the equaliser. So I didn't really spend time to integrate, but I, I, I did it really I did it really quickly. So the, the pitch quality was good compared to Tunisia. The, the new world-class training ground facility, as I said, togetherness and professionalism within the team uh, from the players, which I, I was surprised a little bit because, you know, you have world-class players as well on the, on, the, on the team. You probably, you know, asking yourself, who was Bolton Wonders? But with Bolton Wonders, we had JJ Okocha, we had um, Fernando Hierro, we had Ivan Campo, we had uh, Edith Nakata, the Japanese, we had El Hash Diouf, we had a really some Gary Speed, Kevin Nolan, Kevin Davis, UCS Kalinen. We had we had some to not forget, you know, the rest. We had a really good squad. So there were we were together, really banding together from day one. And then we the level of professionalism, especially on the pitch, was good. And then and then obviously the weather I had to I had to accept me and my family, and then uh, we settle ourselves, you know, in, in the rainy Bolton really well. Briefly share with us what it was like in the dressing room at that time, because you're multilingual. Share with us what mm. it was like in the dressing room around those different cultures. I think, um, I still remember, it was amazing. Um, you can't have better change room than than that. Just the fact you have, if you put on the side, you know, talented, you know, and superstars players, and then you look at the characteristics, it's, it's amazing to have a multicultural dressing room where you have different languages, but all banding together. I think, I think the hard bits and then the, the clever bits is what the club did that time is, is to create an environment where everyone feel feel comfortable. And then I remember Sam Maladais, he came up with the rules where every Tuesday night, because we have Wednesday off, every Tuesday night, we all must meet up in a local restaurant for a dinner and then have a little, you know, party, you know, during that night. We can bring our girlfriend or partners so it's not an option, Keith. It was must. I remember I, I missed the first time because I thought, okay, I want to recover, I want to stay home and sleep. And then I missed it, me and JJ Okocha, because we were we were ne uh, living next to each other. He was my neighbor. And then he hit us with one week with one week salary. So since that time, I never missed it. And then when, when I first time went there, I thought it was going to be boring, but I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed being around the, the guys, especially not in a formal way. We were like just dinner and then enjoying ourselves, a little bit of music, and then and then you go back home. So by by eleven thirty at night, eleven o'clock, you go you go home. So that helped us to know each other outside the pitch. That helped us to band, helped our families to band to each other as well to know, exchange numbers, and then and then stay in touch speak about different things with your teammate rather than football and tactical or whatever. Toward the end of the season, we were doing it just by ourselves because the club stopped paying, you know, our dinners. But then we carried on doing that. And our family carried on, you know, doing, doing you know, these uh, dinners and then travels uh, to, the, to Europe together and then planning together. And that, I think, me personally, helped me to feel comfortable to go to the changing room, enjoying myself, especially me, I was speaking different language, so I was bonding with the uh, bonding with the African boys, the Senegalese, the Nigerian who speak French. I was bonding with the English boys because I was speak English, of course, and then and then I had my neighbor Fernando Yero and then Ivan Campo, the Spanish guy, you know, even with the uh, gestures, you you can find a way, you know, to 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 uh, to, to send the message, but uh, but I think you know that's the that's the most important thing you know, uh, and that was the key to our success in Bolton in Bolton time. I think we were close to each other's 
and not just on the pitch or the dressing room. It was also outside. And our families as well, they were they were linked to each other. So that that what make it, you know, easier for us. Um, you feel you feel the power in each other group, togetherness, as I said, and then uh, uh, and and supporting each other. Bruno Ngotti, um, the former international, French international, they're all like, you know, asking questions if they need help, if I need help, and then as soon as you you are you ask and then they help you. Um, that was the key to our success. So I, I think, you know, having multiculture nowadays, I see in the Premier League, you have players from all over the world. But if you don't, if you don't prepare the right environment, then you're probably throwing your money on a, in the water, like we say. Well, in your opinion, how specifically did the, the club staff develop respect and trust in the players uh, Bolton? Um, I think I think the fact that they were there all time for us that was a key for us. Uh, I always take it from my my experiences. So when I came to England, I needed I needed information. I needed you know to find my balance. I need to find uh, you know tried and trusted you know uh, uh, things that I um, I used to. So so the the club and the staff they were all time there for me. We had the two players care agents. My family can call any time um, during the day, and they always there to help her. So I remember I had to travel for an international uh, trip uh, to I think Botswana or something in for national team. And then my wife, you know, she had the, uh, she had the pain, and she I couldn't do nothing from far. So I had to. We had the players care who look after her and then, you know, took her to the hospitals. We didn't know the system, how it works. So took her to the hospital and look after her. So the, these are the small things that probably you will remember all time and then you respect from from the club perspective and then especially the people that they did that time. And then inside the club, it, it, it's, it's crazy, but, you know, I remember Sam Aladais, you know, when, when you have injured... We had a, a plan called six to six plan. So if you get injured, you come six o'clock a.m. You go back home six six o'clock p.m. So you spend the whole day there. Can you imagine? You know, a player. Well, we we, we hated it. I, I don't. I, I didn't survive. You know. You know that you within the second day you want to go back to train. So <laughs> to avoid that plan. But but then, can you imagine the staff? You know, staying six from six to six with you. It's it's ridiculous. So. Staff from uh, multicultural as well, multicultural staff. We have we have Japanese, we have Italian, we have uh, English. Um, I can't remember we had France, but we had we had the staff available who are ready to support you in, in all aspects. And that I think you know um, answer answer the questions of being respected is what you provide you know to the players you know to perform at the level. And I remember I performed at my highest level. Because I had, you know, support in in all areas, um, uh, video analysis perspective. At that time, I get the CV or CD of every centre forward I'm gonna play against. You know, two days before, have a look at the individual clips and then know the strength and weaknesses of every centre forward I'm playing against, and then know that I, that helped me to be ready, you know, for the game. You mentioned. Yeah, there's an affinity and in dressing rooms there that multicultural, but having people that care, frequently having people that have a meaning behind what it is they're doing. So this uniqueness that Sam Allardyce had brought back then, it's very prevalent in the game now as we see, but you know, behind the scenes here, just you sharing it is is sharing some of the experiences is provides lots of weight and evidence of how good he was with his staff, combined with this selection of players that he that he brought together. Now, when you retired, and I'm sure some of that as some of Sam's and the staff's knowledge and understanding of the game has, has probably it's probably seeped into how you now coach and we'll delve in a little bit around that. When you retired from playing professional football, you you transitioned into the coaching arena. What was it about coaching, though, that actually intrigued you the most? Everything. 
the the most important thing for me is the adrenaline, the pressure. I think just because you know I was that sense of responsibility that I had, you know, since young age, and I felt like okay, succeed to I have good experience on in football, but also as I said, you know, the sense of responsibility and and the pressure that you get from from this role that intrigued me, and then straight away. I thought about it because, you know, I think one of the conversation I had with uh, uh, Nigel Atkins uh, in Southampton, and by chance I was injured the, the following year. So I was injured and I spent my, my, my year in a, in, a, in a physio room. So I profit from that situation to, to go even to the 23s, looking at the 23s games, watching the training session. Martin Hunter was there. Um, and then even uh, our first team training session, I watch and ask questions, why this and how we do this. And I started to be interested in what I need to do to get my qualification as well. Um, and then it started like that. Um, and then I started to obviously build up, you know, the, uh, the, the career as, as a coach, uh, the club. Obviously, offered me, you know, um, first an international development coach to help build an academy in Africa, but it never happened uh, for for whatever reason. The club, the club financially had to change, you know, his directions. And then, uh, since uh, Marcus Lieber passed away, obviously the, the things changed. So, so I changed to assistant coach with Martin Hunter. Uh, and as a U21 assistant coach. And then from there, I started, you know, to like a sponge to get every information, every detail about coaching, about myself as a coach and about how to develop players. Um, and then the lucky bit for me is to be in the uh, the famous international Southampton Academy, you know, um, that that was the lucky bit for me because because we had a really good setup uh, in terms of staff, in terms of structure, and in terms of reputation. Because you know, you know, as we know Southampton, they uh, promoted to the Premier League and to the international team a lot of players, and I had the chance, you know, to coach, obviously, Alex Chamberlain, Adam Lalana. You know, they were in Chandigarh while I was playing, but then when I retired, I had the chance to coach. You know, for a little bit, players like James Ward-Prowse, uh, Luke Shaw, Matt Target, uh, Jack Stephens. It's amazing when, when, when as a coach, that time you look at the players who say mm, you're not sure, and then suddenly, you know, a couple of years, you see them international expressing themselves. It's amazing. You mentioned a few names in there, Raddy. So obviously Nigel Atkins probably planted that seed for you in terms of thinking about coaching and then obviously what preceded it in terms of getting injured and then you developing this curiosity around why and what and how you how how things operate. And then Talk then about working with um, Martin Hunter and what you learned from him. But in terms of your coaching pathway since then, who have been your coaching mentors? In terms of coaching, it was Martin Hunter. Martin, for for the ones who don't know, I'm sure the people who come across to Martin, I think Keith come across to Martin. Martin is a really theoretic, you know, a person. So he like a theory. And then you can see the progression of whatever session or developing, you know, clearly. And that was the missing bit for me because, you know, I was a football player. I played a long time as a football player and I think I know football. I played in a, in a very, in all levels, internationally and and then locally. But, but you know, to express myself on the pitch, that is it's totally different to what, to play football. I see now... I see some of the superstars now on TV speaking about coaching, uh, speaking about playing football. It's easy because they're superstars, they're really talented players, they played football. It's easy for them to put free kicks, it's easy for them to score goals. But then to to to, to teach 
a young player who doesn't have that talent, you need a you need a, a process. You need you need details, and mostly you need to understand their feeling and their uh, mentality about you know what you want to teach them, um, and all these aspects you have to consider, and and that's what I learned from from Martin. Martin, you know, obviously followed my my development as a coach since since I retired since I, 2000 and basically 12 officially 12 till 2018 so he 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 followed that progression and then every time he monitor and he assist and he give me feedbacks he uh, he go back to one thing and he keep repeating thing he kept it simple with me to be fair but but you know i remember my first step in on the pitch I spent, I think, three, four months observing Martin coaching. And every time I was like eager to, to come in and, and try, you know, to express myself. But then he said, no, just, just hold on, watch. Uh, and then he came after the, the training session and he asked me what I watched. And then he gave me feedback for three months. And then after that, the shocking bit when I had the first session in my in the, uh, in uh, in my career, I remember I remember the faces till now. I remember it was I think in the session it was uh, people like uh, Jack Stephens, Sam McQueen, Izzy. It was like so I, I can see the faces. They're just laughing because you know it's not easy to coach. You have to have you know strong character. You have to accept that you're not good in, in the training session. That first session. But you're trying, you know, to, to to send the message. You have to find a way to send the message, the language, the body language. Um, especially, be careful. You make a mistake. You're not sure about, you know, that passing drill. You're not sure about, you know, the rules and in the possession game or the game. So all that you have to you have to to be in control. And then uh, again, you know, progressively. I improved and then progressively I started justly to impose my style and progressively I took over the team in, in 2016. I was not officially obviously confirmed as a head coach, but you know, I was taken over from Martin and everything, preparation, um, individual uh, plans for the players and then feedback for the players you know, meetings, everything. And then officially, you know, in 2017, I took over the, the U23s. Obviously, the, we won the, the cup final and then we, we got qualification to the, uh, to the Premier League One, Division One in 2018. And then I helped, you know, to develop, you know, players like Jan Valery. I contributed with, with development of people like Obafemi, Will Smallbone, um, Jake Vulcans, a lot of players, you know, to not forget the names, um, played in, a, in the first team and in Premier League uh, level. But um, still still go back to Martin Hunter um, to get his advices. And his last advice when I called him um, after my experience in Esperance finished, uh, I told him, Martin, uh, I'm heading back to England. He was following the result, and every after game he sent me texts. But then, <laughs> but then I told him, Martin, I think you know things is done with Tunisia, Esperance, and then I'm heading back to England. He said, "Welcome to the uh, to the head coach uh, jobs. Um, if you not get stacked, then you're not a manager." <laughs> and then, uh, and uh, yeah, definitely, uh, uh, he has his own style, and uh, and I love because you know he's between me myself what I want and then what the uh, football word wants as well well Ruddy I mean you do speak quite fondly of Martin there is our old saying and there is a saying that don't buy a don't buy a carpet for your office when you manage because you're not going to wear it out that's for sure but, exactly <laughs> so, I know when you literally you go through coaching you're now an airline you're, you pass your air license you now are, are a pro license coach as well but from yeah, your yeah. perspective building trust in a, in a coach's methods and principles takes time for staff and players to develop 
what qualities do you possess in regards to help helping develop and nurture both culture and build trust? It's um, definitely the communication is key. And the way you communicate with, with people is is huge. But I think, you know, each individual, he needs to look at himself first. Uh, what kind of person he is, how he reacts, and or he manage, you know, certain situations, especially the pressure situation, because our word is, is only pressure. Uh, are you calm? Are you engaged? Are you... A crazy person, you know, like we say. So you need to understand yourself for you to be able to to manage the other people. Because if you don't know yourself, then maybe you will clash with the disengagement with the other people. We want to engage other people and motivate them for potential objectives. And then I think you know the 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 good thing about myself, as I said. When you speak different languages, it's not just the language you you learn. It's it's the way you communicate with a different a person who come from different culture. So when you realize, you know, people in the training ground when they see me speaking English, it's not like when they see me speaking French. When I speak French, even my body language changes, and then the the way I talk changes. So when I speak to Jan Vanerie in, in French, trying to explain training sessions, it's totally different to Michael Obafemi or Will Smallburn in, in, in the sessions. Um, and then you have to adapt to every person. You have to consider the background. To know the background, you need to build a good relationship with these people and knows what are their strengths, their weaknesses, what are their fears. Especially in that age, when you speak about 17, 16, 17 years old, between that under 23 years old, it's about maybe players hiding their fears and then protect them by being aggressive or they ignore you or a reaction that maybe not making sense for you as a coach. And you think you're a leader that time, now you have to impose your your uh, rules, which is wrong. So it, it's, it's applicable for staff and players for me to build the... I think the key to success, you know, to have a, a good performance team and have a, and help the players to perform at the highest, you need to have that balanced communication and adjusted communication to each individual. And I managed to do that in every experience I had. I can even, you know, change, as I said, you know, change the tones, you have to change the body language, and you have, you know, to take care of people's values and, and, and backgrounds. It's very important without communication or at least effective communication, you won't succeed, you know, in the role or the job or the objective you want to achieve. Where's someone now that has been through experiences with lots of different players? So you mentioned quite a few names. You mentioned about, you talked in that last little bit about fear, about managing that with the players and, and then being able to communicate with them. And you've had a numerous amount of experiences now from working with what would be deemed youth players all the way through to first-team professionals. For you looking through the lens of an experienced coach, what are the differences between average and elite players? Oh, wow. That, that's a big... That's big questions, David, I think. And it's it's the key as well to... For, for many generations. I think, you know, people will think, yeah, maybe the technical ability of a player. Or some other people think, oh, yeah, maybe the the physical ability of, of a, a player. Neither, neither of them. For me, is is their mindset. How much they want to succeed. How how much they're ready to sacrifice, how much they're ready to focus and commit to their objectives. So it's always go it's all go back to the mindset. It's always go back to the to the mentality of that play. You can you can be the best technical, skillful player in the world, but if you don't have the right mindset, you won't succeed. And and I saw many players, you know, throughout my career and it happened to me. 
personally, as, as I mentioned earlier, I wasn't the best in my team. I was an average player. But because I have different mindset, I succeed. And I saw that within the academy, you know, with, with my eyes, you know, uh, when I was coaching. So I, I, I can mention, you know, James Ward-Prowse, for example. Uh, whoever whoever knows James Ward-Prowse, he will say free kicks. He won't say, you know, he's he's the best midfielder in terms of skills or, or even physically, you know, is not is not the best in the Premier League, but he's the best from free kicks, and he made it, and he make he made it happen. So I think that the the ones who know James Ward-Prowse, you will know the video that came out a couple of years ago was about him when he was seven or five or seven years old. I can't remember the age, but he was speaking about what he wanted to be. For him, after training sessions, no matter what is the training session, whether prep game prep or or recovery training session, he take a bag of balls and then he go practice free kicks. And that's the key for me. I think to, to answer your questions, uh, how much are you ready to sacrifice and then how much are we ready to repeat the same thing every day obsessively till you create that autonomy to, to be the best in? People normally, people normally see the, the outcome of that hard work and that sacrifice. You will see only the success, but then you don't see what's happened before. What happened before, he's been working years about you know his free kicks and then every year every day he adjusts you know something till it becomes you know automatic till it becomes you know something that he apply well and then he he made it to the first team in uh, uh, with Southampton as a captain from free kicks and he made it to the national team England team because of the you know, set places you know corners and free kicks and then and then not neglecting obviously the other specialities but what I'm trying to say here, he, he worked for that. So the, the mindset and the mentality can make a big difference. And, and the problem now with this new generation, they don't have that patience, you know, to and wait for the opportunity, you know, to, to, to get it. So you need to work toward, you know, your objectives. Wait, just take your time. I see teams promoting players, you know, 14 years old or 15 years old playing to the first team, yeah. I think you need to be realistic with, with these young players. You know, you know, 15 years old playing in the first team is a big problem psychologically, especially if you give him that contract where you give him a lot of money and you give him the car, you give him the house. How are you going to motivate him? No matter, no matter what's happened, you reduce percentage of motivation. Even he's, he's the guy who's focused on his job, but you reduced his motivation because, you know, some players, they play for money and they play for, for that. And you give them that, done. They take him time at least, you know, to reset and regenerate his mindset, you know, to go and find a different objective. So we need to be careful with these young, young players, young kids. We need to understand them individually. What are their motivators? What are their objectives? Uh, how, how are we going to deal with this? And then and then take it from there. Uh, not all the players like James James Ward Prowse or Alex Chamberlain when he was in, in Southampton, but you know we need to adjust and adapt to that. Uh, but definitely for me, even the players who don't have that mindset, we need to help them find that mindset. That's what I'm trying to say as a coaches. Being obsessed, I always say to the boys that I coach, you need to hit that level of obsession. For you to be able to to have to have that autonomy and that success, so Ronaldo, he's thirty eight. He since his career uh, or throughout his career, he was working obsessively to be the best in the world. Do you think Ronaldo can stop now? He can't stop, but I'm sure in his head because he had that obsession, that autonomy, he can stop. He want he want to make more. I read the. I can't remember the name of the book, but I read a psychology book speaking about psychological traumas. So most of the successful people, uh, or even, not just on, on a football, even in the biggest organizations, they are successful. But if you, if you dig around, you'll find that they had a, a trauma that led them to, to be successful. So myself, I had, I had the death of my dad who 
who who stayed in my head and then that word came from my uncle telling me you're the you're the responsible so throughout my my career and even my life i was taking responsibility and I was striving and then working for success with products of our environment it is evident that the ones that have got this intrinsically driven passion to to do so well doesn't necessarily mean they they're going to meet their they're going to get to the panacea but it actually got they've got the purpose to get out of a bed to get out of bed in the morning and actually work towards their outcome yeah. to put their extra miles in to work harder at the process working harder on the process to get them to the outcome now it's been fascinating but the last and final question for you is as a coach what is one question you wish players ask you more frequently oh definitely how how I can do this or how I can do that i always say to the players i'm here to support you guys uh, i'm able, i'm here sharing your objectives to make you the best as you can i'm here i'm working for you so the the difficult bit for me if the players tell me we don't need anything we we're fine i always try to find you know ways you know to challenge the players to ask for them to ask how are we going to do this and then and then you know that helps me to express myself and showcase my skills and showcase my experience and then lead them to whatever they wanted to 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 be and then learn from from people i meet and from from the people i coach and uh, definitely i always find uh, uh, that question is the trigger for me to to help people around me so I'm going to spread the the sparkles you know the the gold dust you know I want to spin and spread it out you know the people that I meet Already I think on behalf of of my dad and I we just want to thank you for for coming on to the podcast today and sharing your journey obviously a very very interesting journey from a a young boy growing up in Tunisia to somebody that played a lot of games at, at a couple of different teams in the Premier League and then on to now helping develop and grow the next generation of players and, and as a first team coach as well. So we really appreciate you coming on, sharing that with us and, and thank you for your time today. And uh, we wish you all the best with the rest of your season. And uh, we uh, we look forward to, to speaking to you soon. Yeah, thank you very much, David. Thank you, Keith. Always pleasure, obviously, to send and spread the, the words, you know, in a round. Uh, nothing is impossible. So hopefully people who listen will uh, will help them a little bit, you know, to, uh, to achieve their goals. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.